Hello, everyone. Welcome again to the Rotten Horror Picture Show, the horror movie podcast where we talk about films off of the Rotten Tomatoes 200 Best Horror Movies of All Time list. My name is Clay, and with me as always is Amanda. Amanda, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I am good. I'm excited to talk about the movie we're talking about today. Uh, It's a weird one because it's one that I saw uh, weird for me only because I saw it and I loved it. And then I don't think I've watched it since that first time, which is generally unusual for me. I usually tend to go back and and rewatch stuff I really like, but this was, I never did for some reason. Um, Yeah. We are talking about 2012's Cabin in the Woods, which has a 92% Rotten Tomatoes score and is number 30 on this list. Which I I think we're going to have a lot to talk about when it comes to placement on the list for this because uh, yes. that, that feels <laughs> that feels very high. As much yeah. as I do enjoy this movie, it feels very high. But um, have had you seen this one before? Yes, actually, I think this might be <laughs> other than my wild card picks. I think this might be one of the only movies we've done so far that I have seen more than you have. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, I think I've seen this like four times. I was really hoping you were going to say twice. Because I was going to be well, you know, a win is a win, I guess. Right, right. I mean, I'm going to take what I can get. But yeah, yeah. No, no, I think I think this was like the fourth time I, I watched it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, I assume you were a fan then? Yes. Yes. Yeah, this yes. was, this is, uh, uh, you know, I think I was thinking about why I hadn't come back and watched this one more. And I think it was one of those those ones where um, there's a lot of movies that I really enjoy that I would like to watch again, but I don't want to just put them on. I would like to watch them. Mm. And I think this was one of those where it's like, okay, I'm going to watch Cabin in the Woods and I'm going to actually like sit down and watch it at some point, but I never just got the chance to do that. Gotcha. But- that's also kind of strange because I feel like you could throw this on while you're doing something else very easily and, and still have a good time with it. Yes, I think that's that's at least one, if not two, of my four watches was more of just the like, oh, this is fun. Let me just let me just put this on. Yeah, I'm surprised I haven't done that because I'm always looking for stuff to throw on in the background while I'm working. And uh, yeah, this is a very a very fun one just from dialogue standpoint that you don't really need to. Um, always be paying that close attention to so maybe i just need to be less of a snob about it i guess (laughs) i would actually argue that this is maybe even a little more fun if you're paying a little less attention to it yeah (laughs) (laughs) um i've always i've always thought that's the mark of a great movie is if you're only paying half attention and you still come away going wow that was amazing then i guess it must be really good um (laughs) But we are going to take a quick break and play the trailer, and then we will come back and talk about Cabin in the Woods. Hey, everybody ready? It's on the road! It doesn't even show up on the GPS. It's unworthy of global positioning. That's the whole point. Get off the grid, right? Hello? I'm thinking this thing doesn't take credit cards. Sign says closed. We're looking for, uh, what's it called? Tillerman Road. Not to get you there. Getting back. That's your concern. Oh, this is awesome. Whoa, no way. have passed to the gate. They are come to the killing floor. Get this party started! I seriously believe something weird is going on. What is that thing? We have to stay together. This isn't right. We should split up. Yeah, good idea. Really? We gotta get out of here. Somebody sent those things here to get us. 
missing the point. They want to see us punished. Okay, Cabin in the Woods from 2012, as I said, number 30 on our list, 92% Rotten Tomatoes score, directed by Drew Goddard, written by Joss Whedon and Drew Goddard, starring Kristen Connolly, Chris Hemsworth, Richard Jenkins, Bradley Whitford, and a gigantic godly hand, <laughs> which I have some thoughts about. Uh, the literal hand of God, I guess, yeah. Um, oh. Amanda, what happens in Cabin in the Woods? When five college friends arrive at a remote forest cabin for a little vacation, little do they expect the horrors that await them. One by one, the youths fall victim to backwoods zombies. But there is another factor at play. Two scientists are manipulating the ghoulish goings-on, but even as the body count rises, there is yet more at work than meets the eye. Mm-hmm. All right, Clay. Mm-hmm. This is a long one. So, <laughs> as they say, hold on to your butts. Uh, things you will find in this movie include... Yes. <clears throat> werewolf, mm-hmm. alien beast, mm-hmm. mutants, mm-hmm. wraths, mm-hmm. zombies, mm-hmm. reptiles, clowns, mm-hmm. witches, mm-hmm. sexy witches, demons. Important distinction. Important distinction. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Different categories entirely. Mm-hmm. Uh, demons, Hell Lord, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Angry Molesting Tree. Yes. <laughs> That's a great reference. Uh, giant Snake. Mm-hmm. Deadites. Mm-hmm. Kevin. We don't, we ne- Actually, technically that's not true because we never do see Kevin. <laughs> <clears throat> but I'll allow it. Mummy. <laughs> All right. Kevin, Mummy, The Bride, The Scarecrow Folk, mm-hmm. Snowman, Dragon Bat, Vampires, Dismemberment Goblins, Sugar Plum Fairy, Merman, The Reanimated, Unicorn, The, the Hupon? The Huron, as in the Native Huron. American people, I believe. Oh. I, I, saw, I saw somewhere it's, uh, uh, it's, I, yeah, I forget. I, let me look it up real quick. All right, all right. I'll, I'm going to finish while you do. All right, the Huron, uh, Sasquatch slash Wendigo slash Yeti, mm-hmm. Dolls, <laughs> The mm-hmm. Doctors, which I like to believe are the doctors from the show, The Doctors, <laughs> uh, Zombie Redneck Torture Family, mm-hmm. Jack-O-Lantern, Giant, and Twins. And Twins. <laughs> people still people I, I still would get not that, have put that right? reference together. People still get I, that I guess. Right? <laughs> Uh, yes, quite a few monsters in this one. Um, yes. The uh, the thing I was looking up for, for the hero, I guess it's just sort of, at least on the IMDb trivia, it's a uh, tangential, they claim it's a, they think it's a tangential reference to a Buffy the Vampire Slayer episode that both of these guys worked on. Because both of these writers, Joss Whedon and Drew Goddard, are <laughs> writers on Buffy the Vampire Slayer which comes through in a number of different ways in this movie. Um, yes. Joss Whedon, Le- Drew, Drew Goddard has quite a resume, but he doesn't have as much of a, uh, 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 what's the word I'm looking for? He's not as well-known, I guess, as Joss Whedon. Joss Whedon is, is pretty zeitgeisty as far as genre mm-hmm. stuff goes. Uh, but Drew Goddard, he wrote, Cloverfield, he wrote on Buffy and Angel, he wrote on Alias, he wrote on Lost, he wrote World War Z and The Martian. Oh. Uh, he wrote, he was the creator of the Daredevil show on Netflix. Um, so he's he's got quite a, uh, he's got quite the street cred when it comes to genre stuff. But it's tough, it's tough to watch this and not think Joss Whedon, because <laughs> his name is, his name and, and I think his style is pretty, pretty prevalent. What's uh, what are your thoughts on Joss Whedon? 
generally as as I guess I should say his work, not the person. So I have mixed feelings because, as I'm sure many people could easily predict if you have listened to any of this podcast before, um, I loved Buffy the Vampire Slayer as a kid. Mm -hmm. And so part of me will always kind of like have a soft spot for Joss Whedon and and his work. Mm -hmm. But while I have matured... I often feel like his <laughs> style has not matured along with me. Sure. Sure. Yeah. 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 It's just, it, it gets a little like, it gets a little like too much of like, oh, this is your shtick and you stick really closely to it. And, and I would, I would give you that most of the time it works, but when it doesn't, it really doesn't. Yeah. I would agree. I think it's, I also, uh, if, if anyone has listened to any of, our other shows you'll know that i'm a very big buffy the vampire slayer fan but i generally didn't really like a lot of his other tv stuff i think he's a very good writer um Mm -hmm. and i think his style works selectively i think and i I think it works in when it's a little bit restrained outside of buffy Mm because buffy is pretty much like a hundred percent him style wise but like I, I did not like Firefly because I, I didn't think oh. the style fit in Firefly. Um, but I do really like this, and I do. I thought his work on the Avengers movies was really good. I think he's a really good yeah. writer. That when he's got a little bit of his capital J, capital W, Joss Whedon style dialed back a little bit, I think it works mm-hmm. works the best. Um, and I think this movie is a really nice kind of uh mix of his thing and just straight storytelling and straight character work it's not too heavy um it's a nice middle ground how how do you feel about that yeah i i would agree i feel like i feel like the difficult thing with with like Joss Whedon's style is that it is so immediately recognizable yeah yeah that at times this movie can feel a little uneven because it slips in and out of that mode frequently. So there, there are times where it's almost like, I'm trying to think of a good example. And of course I'm not coming up with one where it almost feels like you've switched gears a little bit Mm -hmm. and then you kind of the transition back into the Joss Whedon mode can feel a little like, I don't know, a little jarring sometimes, but I do, but I do think it works. I, I do think overall with the tone of the movie and the tempo that it keeps, I, I think it does work. Mm. Yeah. I think, I think what works for me in that regard in this one is that the tone is really kind of split between the two storylines. Cause you've got, you've got your, uh, above ground story, which is, um, essentially the meta sort of explanation as to why so many horror movies play out the same way and have the same archetypes and 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 whatnot it's because there it's be that's being puppeteered by this other group which is sort of the underground story who is doing this basically because they have to appease these uh, gods who will destroy the world if they don't run these scenarios where the same archetypes get killed and and all this kind of stuff and the mm-hmm. above ground story uh, is played very straight for the most part. There's some jokiness to it, but it doesn't feel out of place. Like it's not too heavy on the here's a super serious moment and someone's going to crack wise about it. Like they don't – oddly enough, the, the, uh, the above ground story isn't meta in and of its – in like the dialogue. It's meta in the depiction of it, mm-hmm. but it's not really very meta in the dialogue and whatnot. Whereas the yeah. – below ground story is very much more of the Whedon thing dialed up where you've got these characters who are capital C characters and Mm -hmm. that's where more of the comedy is being pumped into is you know the mundane uh, white collar guys who work in this uh, lab basically controlling the situation yeah it it is definitely like 
interesting tonally when you shift between those two stories. Because yeah, yeah, the the the, the guys running the show are definitely the ones that I think you can kind of tell that like Whedon had the most fun mm-hmm. writing that side of it. <laughs> like because because it, it, it's just clear like it's he gives them kind of the lines that you know were probably the lines he loved writing and like i i just i got the vibe that he had they had more fun with that part of it than they did with the like quote unquote a plot of mm-hmm. five college co-eds going on their vacation to a remote cabin in the woods mm-hmm. yeah I, I i do think that's definitely where the fun comes in um, but I also do really like the way that they take the opportunity to, before they even really explain what's going on, they subvert things nicely to kind of lead you into the situation that they're setting up. So you're, when you meet your virgin archetype, the first thing you find out about her is that she's been having an affair with one of her teachers and when yeah. you when you meet the jock ar- archetype, the first thing you find out about him basically is that he's actually very smart and not really he's not just a dumb jock. Um, right. And uh, uh, the other one that I also really enjoy that comes to, into play a lot later is that the, the, your paranoid stoner character turns out to be right, which is fun. <laughs> um, yeah. Instead of just yeah, being there for co- a comedic effect, he actually his paranoia is warranted. Yeah, and and that's actually really great because he's the only one of the five of them that you really never get a glimpse of him and who he is outside of his archetype. Yeah, he pretty much stays like, the same. Exactly, and like <laughs> like you were saying, when we're introduced to Dana, who's like the quote unquote virgin, she's talking about how she was sleeping with her professor, and now they broke up or he dumped mm-hmm. her. Um. Jules, who's the uh, the whore, um, is like in a long term committed relationship with Kurt, and she just right. dyed her hair blonde. Like she's right. not even really like the dumb blonde stereotype. It's like not her at all. Like you said, Kurt's actually he's he's on the football team, but he's really smart. Um, you find out a little bit more later that Holden is like a, a nerd, but also like you you find out first he's also on the football team. And then he sort of mm-hmm. becomes the, the nerd. Um, but yeah, Marty, the stoner, is always just a stoner. Like, yeah. <laughs> at least in the first half to three quarters of the movie, he like when he rolls up to the house, he is smoking out of a gigantic bong in his car. Um, he's really given no personality traits beyond uh, weed and sarcasm. Mm-hmm. And so it's fun that the, the sort of inversion wait, of that that like he he that ends up being right wait you're saying he has no other characteristics besides weed and sarcasm get it weed uh, and sarcasm weed and sarcasm well that'll be all for me folks it's been a good run um i'm sorry someone's clicking the lights <laughs> in this room i don't know if if that means i'm supposed to leave or what but oh god Claire. all right um, that speaking of that bong, that bong apparently that, that bong that collapses into a travel mug was the apparently a bong. working. Yeah, it apparently was a working travel mug. It, the whole thing worked. It actually worked as a bong, and it actually worked to telescope down, telescope down into a travel mug, and it apparently cost five thousand dollars to make. <laughs> <gasps> oh my god! <laughs> yeah. Um. Wow. But yeah, uh, yeah, I, 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 how do you feel about meta, meta fiction in general? Because we, I, it's funny that we, uh, um, I was listening to our episode on Scream uh, today. Mm. Uh, I was editing that. Um, and so I've kind of, and I've also just came off of listen, listening to this very long uh, dissertation, I get, or thesis video about this one person's interpretation of what Twin Peaks is about, which mm-hmm. is very, very meta influenced and, and has a lot of, uh, uh, it actually made me think about this. I was thinking about that a lot as I was watching this movie. Cause I, there were some things that popped up that were kind of similar. So I've had kind of meta on the brain for the past few days, but 
we we never really on the scream episode we never really talked about how we feel about the idea of of meta fiction or or meta horror in particular i i i think i hmm i'm trying to figure out like like under what circumstances and like what examples of it i i've kind of experienced and of course like i'm thinking mainly about this one and scream because those are the big ones um i i think i have like a natural (laughs) inclination towards over analysis hence Mm -hmm. why i go to school and hence why i do this podcast with you (laughs) um oh i thought we were just friends i didn't realize that it was the over analysis (laughs) that you really enjoyed oh yeah yeah no i'm i'm yeah, I'm just I'm just here for the for the uh, the talking points. Cool. <laughs> um, no, but so, so I, I think given that I have a tendency to to like it and sort of be drawn towards it, but I'm also very aware that it can get very tedious for for some for some people and in some circumstances. Does that make sense? Yeah, I do. I think I think for me there's a level of um cleverness that needs to be uh baked into it where if you're mm. being if you're winking at the camera too much I think that it then it overstays its welcome very quickly. Um yeah. and if the only point of it is if the only point of being meta is to be meta, I think you you're kind of missing the point to an extent. Um and it it, I don't like that stuff as much, but I do really like it in something like this where it is telling a story that completely kind of stands on its own merit, but does have this meta secondary level to it. I mean, I guess it's probably an equally on the on the, the surface level, but the, the meta aspect of it is... Um, very cleverly and very smartly uh, employed because it's taking it's taking a question that really nobody nobody really asks if they do they kind of ask it facetiously it's like how come these these campers keep going back to this place where everybody keeps getting killed it's like well that's (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah why are they doing that that's kind of an interesting jumping off point for a story which lets them sort of look at some of these these archetypes and and story structures and story styles in a really fresh kind of clever way um whether it's the character archetypes or the uh explanation for where the monsters come from which i love i'm a as Mm. people probably know i'm a big fan of the magic book i um and (laughs) when they went down into the basement and it's just like magic books and and talismans and demon resurrection shit as far as the eye could see i was like oh yes this is a movie for me cuz it's one of those things where it's like they yeah. are they're bringing attention to this stuff and they're kind of calling it out but they're not doing it very they're not like breaking the fourth wall to do it and it doesn't feel like they're being they're trying to prove how smart they are i just think mm-hmm. it's a good story um baked or or wrapped around this this uh meta idea of of why do horror movies play out the way that they do yeah no i i agree with that and i really like that aspects that aspect of this movie as well and when you when you were saying that about like the more meta stuff that you enjoy it more when it's not like constantly kind of winking at the camera it made me think of uh Wes Craven's new nightmare Mm -hmm. and how like (laughs) part of the problem for me with that movie was that it was kind of constantly like wink wink nudge nudge yeah Yeah. like this specific in group is is who we're doing this for um whereas this movie is more like we're gonna take all the stereotypes and cliches of a typical horror movie since you know the 70s leading up through now Mm -hmm. 
And and not only is like the twist on it kind of a fresh way to explore those cliches, it also does this neat trick at the same time of tying it back to like general storytelling traditions right, throughout right. like history. Like like we keep saying like the different the, the the kids who go to the cabin are all these different archetypes. And these archetypal figures are in our stories going back, you know, like hundreds of and thousands of years into like mythology. Right. Yeah. And so it's, yeah, it's cool where it ties that in of like, yes, we have all these stereotypes in horror movies, but we have been constantly retelling kind of the same stories over and over again for most of human history. And like, mm. it gives you a really good explanation for why that is and why they're important. Right. And, you know, it kind of, it, it kind of leads me to, the one beat, and I know you uh, you wanted to talk about this uh, uh, a, a bit, the ending in, in general, but just to kind of mm. continue in the meta path for a second. Um, the yes. one beat that I don't love <clears throat> is at the end where they, they choose to let the world end and the god that shows up busts through the ground and it's this giant hand. It's like the mm-hmm. hand of God or something. And <laughs> I, the first time I saw it, I remember thinking, ah. I really don't like that it's a human hand because they yeah. talk about this, the old gods and this, you know, blah, you know, you get through the whole movie, you're getting this like monstery rumble kind of thing. And then you finally get an illustration of this and it's just a giant human hand. And it's kind of, it's kind of weird. And yeah. watching it this yeah. time, I, I realized, well, it's kind of weird, but it's really in line with the secondary sort of, meta story that they're telling where not only are they showing you oh here's the explanation as to why all these things keep happening in horror movies the whole movie is really a metaphor for creating these stories in general so you've got the people who are underground are acting as essentially the filmmakers and you've got uh What's his name? Uh, Bradley Whitford and Richard Jenkins are ostensibly the <laughs> writer and director who are, or I, sh- I guess they were more like the writers because the director is Sigourney Weaver. Um, yeah, but <laughs> literally. But the monsters that they're, the gods that they're appe- uh, they are appeasing are the audience. And yeah. the audience are the ones who want to see the blood and who, you know, you have to make sure you, you hit all these beats to satisfy the audience. So it makes sense in that reading that the hand that you see at the end, the hand of God, is a human hand because it is – the implication is that these gods are are us, essentially. Um, I still think it's a boring choice, but yeah. <laughs> if, if that's why they did it, I guess it makes sense. But, um, yeah, it got me think. I was thinking about that stuff because this – this Twin Peaks thing I was watching was was discussing Twin Peaks as this, um, as the, it was really delving into the depths of how deep the metatextualness of it goes. Um, mm-hmm. Talking about how Cooper is a stand-in for the audience and all this other stuff that's too involved for me to really get into. It was a pretty interesting video, um, <laughs> if you're into that kind of thing. But... Yeah, it just got me thinking about that stuff on a on a like a, another level removed, and I was like, oh yeah, I guess that that's the same kind of thing in Cabin in the Woods because they are they are making a comment about making stories as much as they are making yeah. a comment about the things that are in those stories. Yeah, I, I really I really like that reading. I hadn't really thought about it that way until you were saying this. So like, I find that really interesting, and especially like it, it kind of makes you think back on certain like lines and moments in this movie that almost seemed like they were kind of one dimensional. Like there's the scene with the two, the two, the two guys and they're like watching Jules and Kurt hook up Mm -hmm. and they're like, come on, like show us some boobs or whatever. (laughs) And the lead security dude behind them is like, really? And he and he turns and he's like, "Hey, we're not the only ones watching." Right, right. And it's kind of like, oh, I, I like that. I like that. Like, when you're watching the movie, you think they're referring to these sort of eldritch horror gods, and instead, 
it can also be referring to us. Right. I, I like I like that dimension of it. That's that's a neat observation. Yeah, there's a there's a level of satisfaction that you always hear uh the creators of these horror movies talk about. Like there's a uh a famous quote from Wes Craven. I can't remember who he said it to. Uh it was it, someone asked him about advice for making a horror movie and it, and he said uh give him a fright, give him a hard on and send him home or something like that. Where it's like there's <laughs> there's certain beats that you need to hit and you always hear these guys talking about I just the the ones who are a little bit more attuned to the schlockiness are always talking about how it's like, well, you know, we just got to find the right number of people to kill and just people are coming to see the blood and all this kind of stuff. And I, I, I just yeah. read an, <laughs> a, a quote from Sean Cunningham, the creator of Friday the 13th, where he said that uh, he realized the, the key to a, a great horror movie or a popular horror movie anyway, isn't creating characters you care about and putting them in peril. It's creating characters that you dislike enough that you're really looking forward to watching them get killed. And yeah. <laughs> it is it is this weird sort of sacrificial um, mindset where it's like you're you're creating these things specifically to appease your your god audience kind of thing. And you know now I'm, I'm getting kind of galaxy brained about it here, but you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, I I, to- I totally get that. It's like we're we're all clamoring for the sacrifice in one way or another. Um, yeah, and that's that's interesting because like the thing that this movie does is it at the beginning gives you whether or not you like them or you sort of buy it it gives you characters that are multifaceted to start out with and then as you go it flattens them mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is unusual i feel like most movies especially horror movies do the opposite you sort of get your your ensemble cast and everybody kind of slots into certain buckets and it's only after a certain amount of them have gotten killed that the others maybe start like deepening and you start having a little more uh, personality or you root for them a little harder. And they're sort of like, they, they show that they're more clever than you thought they would be, Mm -hmm. or they're braver or they're more willing to do the crazy thing. And you're like, Oh, Oh wow. I did. I didn't expect that from the nerd. I had no idea he would be so like such a badass or whatever. And this movie does the exact opposite. And it just sort of like, gradually over the first half of the movie reduces these characters down to these like fundamental parts. Yeah. There's a, there's a, a trope that I, I've really come to dislike in a lot of horror movie writing where there is this apparent, there is this perceived need that you have to take us, take a minute like halfway through the movie to, throw the audience a bone as far as like why should i care about these people kind of thing and there's always Mm -hmm. i feel like it always manifests itself in a scene where about halfway through maybe like a little bit past halfway three quarters of the way through it's a quiet scene where two characters kind of have a conversation and one of them like tells a story about their past or something and it's like and that's why i took this job is because I really needed to prove to myself that I could do it or some shit like that. And it's like, I, uh, it, it just feels like a really schlocky way to do that. And I like that they avoid mm-hmm. that in this by, like you're saying, doing it backwards, where you get front-loaded these characters that seem very multifaceted, and then they get hammered down into the uh, one-dimensional characters you're familiar with, which makes for mm-hmm. inter- an interesting character, like reverse character arc, like you're saying but also in the meta sense explains why the characters in these movies are so one dimensional. Yeah. And on the flip side, it's kind of interesting because I think the more traditional character arc, at least a little bit is kind of reserved for the people downstairs. Yeah. 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 Where they start out like, I don't know. I I definitely read somewhere where uh, apparently they wanted the first scene to conf- to be kind of confusing the first time you watch the movie. Yes, I was reading that too, yeah. Yeah, where it's the the, f- the first scene where they're kind of downstairs and they're they're at like the water cooler and one of them's bitching cuz his wife has started baby proofing the kitchen or something and it, they they just kind of come off as like bureaucratic assholes. Mhm. Mm-hmm. Um 
and they are like <laughs> that that never that never really changes but like as an audience member your understanding of why they're doing what they're doing changes and even though they as characters stay pretty much the same your pers- at least for me like my my feelings toward them change even though they're still kind of jerks and they're like you know tequila and betting on yeah. <laughs> how they're going to murder these kids um you know by by the end of the movie where they're both getting killed you're kind of hoping that they you know maybe they'll make it yeah <laughs> maybe yeah. they'll figure something out like you're like oh they're not just like evil like evil bureaucrats working for the director who's trying to like bring about the end of the world, they're actually kind of trying to save it. Yeah. 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 They are. Yeah. Cause they ultimately what happens in the story is they, they lay it all out for these characters, uh, the above ground characters at the cabin um, as saying like, we're doing this because the world is going to end if we don't. And then they chose to tell them to go fuck themselves and end the world, which is <laughs> definitely a choice that you can make. Um, I do want to talk. I do want to talk about the underground stuff because I think the the above ground stuff is good, but I think it's it's not where the high point of the story comes from. All of the stuff underground is just it's just so fun and so f- fresh. I well, almost yeah. fresh because it's very similar <laughs> to um, the group, the Initiative from the fourth season of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which is this underground. Oh God! Yeah. Uh, military organization who has been collecting monsters and doing experiments on them and stuff. It's it's got a very similar vibe. Um, but it's uh, the casting of Richard Jenkins and and Bradley Whitford as those two characters is pitch perfect. They are so perfect. They have the exact right comic sensibilities for the stuff they're doing, and mm-hmm. I just love how they portray this secret this secret underground organization who is quietly puppet mastering the deaths of all of these people and the controlling of these monsters as such just mundane like office work yeah they're just a bunch of nerds who are it's their job and it's what they do Yeah, yeah, there's, like, there's a chemistry department. I think there's even, like, an accounting office or something. Mm -hmm. They've got, like, maintenance. They're complaining about, like, uh, you know, they're having, like, a a lame office party where you get that great, that great scene where they're having the party because they think they've done it. They think they're... Mm -hmm. Mm They're home free. And you get to see the sort of interactions between the characters that you would expect to see in, like... A, a TV show about like just like the humorous interpersonal relationships between people who work together. Like one guy is trying to ask out his coworker and she literally walks away from him in the middle of a sentence. Mm-hmm. Like there's the awkward intern who's like trying too hard to fit in. There's like the one creepy dude who's like flirting with every girl he can get near. And it's just so like wonderfully banal. Yeah, I even think... though they're like controlling all of these, like controlling the environment and human behavior in a way that's like scary to think about. Yeah, I think that scene is probably my favorite scene in the movie. the The party scene. It's funny. Some of yeah. the best <laughs> stuff in this movie apparently was on very much in danger of getting cut. Uh, I guess that they were going to cut that party scene or at least cut it way, way down. Um, But the director really fought for it, and then they ultimately ended up keeping it. And I guess they were also going to cut the Japanese uh, ghost stuff, which (gasps) I think is friggin' amazing. No, yeah, I love that part. (laughs) That's, like, my favorite, like, my favorite background subplot is (laughs) them talking throughout the whole movie about, like, well, you know, we are, like, we are practically the best in the business. Mm-hmm. And they're like, well, you know, technically we're second best. Japan has never failed. And they're like, oh, yeah. <laughs> Japan office. Bleh. Yeah. And like, <laughs> it's just so great. They just, they, they, like, it's, it is kind of a reference to also, like, other cultures around the world that have put out good horror movies. And mm. it's like, 
yeah, all the horror movies that come out of Japan are fucking terrifying. So it makes sense that they're like the best in the business. Yeah, and just the story that they tell in in those sequences is so funny how it's it's this ghost terrorizing a classroom full of little children and then the little children all join hands and start singing and they turn it into a frog or something. It's just it it very yes. much feels appropriate to to that kind of story. It's it's very very good. Yeah. Um, and then- and then, and then one of the guys just like as it's as it's happening, which means that the Japan office has failed, and he's watching it on the monitor. He just starts yelling "fuck you" at the faces of each little Japanese girl on the yes. screen. Yes. <laughs> um. So everything, everything with the, I think the other brilliant element about this underground stuff is. You're you're so focused on the mechanics that they're presenting you where it's like you've got this group and the group is controlling what's happening in in these it's controlling the cliches that create these horror movies and they yeah. br- they draw you in so well uh with the minutia of explaining all these different beats and also just giving you a fun slasher thing on top of it that you completely mm-hmm. don't even realize they are setting you up for one of the most satisfying payoffs I can think of in a horror movie, which is when they release all of the monsters and all of the yeah. monsters come out and just start wreaking absolute havoc on the people in the in the underground thing. It's like it's so so well set up because you don't even realize what they're doing. Where they're like, oh yeah, it's got all these monsters. They control all these monsters. Oh, you're seeing. Oh yeah, I get they. They've got all these monsters set up here. Like you, at least when yeah. I was watching it the first time, I didn't even consider that they were going to release all these monsters. And when they did, mm-hmm. I essentially stood up and started clapping because I was so. I thought it was so great. <laughs> yeah, I, I even I even like the mechanics of like the literal mechanics of it, where uh, Marty and Dana go into the grave that the mm. Buckner family zombies crawl out of. And mm-hmm. when they go down there, it's an elevator. Yes. <laughs> like it's, it's literally like, I don't know that I just, it's like Disney world, that like the underground tunnels of Disney. Yeah. World. Yeah. And it's, it's so interesting because I never thought about that, that like, yeah, this, this group has all of these monsters at their beck and call and they will, depending on what, the group of teenagers or or college kids pick out from the cellar, they then send up the corresponding monster and like, yeah, they have to do that somehow. So yeah, they, they send them up with an elevator through an elevator and then it makes it look like they're crawling out of a grave. It's like very clever. Yeah. And the, the, the betting on the monsters is great too. Betting on which one is going to get picked. Oh yeah. Um, (laughs) But yeah, once they, once they release them, I also love that it happens in waves too. Because uh-huh. the they have to keep like there's only a few sets of doors, so they one group comes out and starts tearing everybody apart, and then there's kind of a lull, and then the next group comes out and starts tearing everybody apart. It's just yeah, just the ding of the elevator. Yeah, it's so satisfying, and like the payoff to the mermaid thing is fantastic. Oh god, <laughs> it's so great. I love that it's so ugly. Yeah, <laughs> it's so gross, and he's just like, oh come on. Yeah, and they they also start um they're also very kind of surprising in who they kill in that sequence as well because in addition to your above ground characters and Bradley Whitford and Richard Jenkins, you've got these two other characters who are kind of at the front of the underground story which is uh uh Amy Acker who plays a character named Lynn who is the um female scientist who interacts with a guy named Truman, played by Brian White, who is kind of a security guard. They never really, I don't think they ever really yeah. explain exactly what he, he does, but he seems to be a security guard says, of sorts. Yeah, I think he says he's like lead security or like head of security or something. Yeah, and he is the voice of um, humanity, I guess, because all of these guys are, are so... What's the word? Um, desensitized to what they're what they're doing, that yeah. they're they're betting on it and laughing about it. And he's the one who's kind of new there, so he's kind of like, "What is this? Is this really 
is this really the right thing that we should be doing? That kind of thing. Yeah, and yeah. I, he's kind of taken aback by their behavior at times. Yeah. And I couldn't remember what happened with him because they mm-hmm. set him up to be almost like it's almost like he's going to be the one to help save the kids or something. Yeah, they do. But he ends up getting killed like almost with no fanfare. He and Lynn both get taken out very quickly and they don't really oh, spend yeah. a lot of time on it. Um I mean at least at least he gets to like he detonates a grenade and that's kills true. a bunch yes, of zombies yeah. that are chowing on him. Lynn just gets swooped up by a snake. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's it. She's just gone. Yeah, but yeah, they they I I think this movie the the strongest part about this movie for me is that they are very clearly fully aware of what they're doing and what they're in control of as far as how they're choosing to tell the story. And it's it's very mm-hmm. smart and it's very clever. Uh, but yeah, the ending. Uh, do you want to talk about the ending, what you did or didn't like about it? Sure. Um, so in the in the end, Marty and Dana have made it down to sort of like the lowest level in the creepy temple to the ancient gods area. And Sigourney Weaver is the director Mm -hmm. (laughs) and she's tried to convince Dana to kill Marty and Dana almost does. And then the monsters get in and kind of break up that scene. And I actually think all of that works and is really great. Mm -hmm. Great werewolf, by the way, the monster, the monster design, the monster design in this movie for, how many monsters there are and how little screen time they all really get. They all look oh great. Oh my God. And werewolves. Yeah, they all look really good. Werewolves are surprisingly easy to screw up. And they, the werewolf in this movie is a fantastic werewolf. I actually, this time I was watching it going like, man, I wish they did a whole movie with that werewolf. Cause that's a good looking werewolf. <laughs> you want to anyway. date with that werewolf? Yeah. I, that's say hey, There's yeah. your movie right there. Yeah. <laughs> um, Oh no! So so, all of that happens, and then they kind of just decide, like you know what, humanity sucks. Mm-hmm. So let's just not kill Marty because the whole thing is the fool has to die. Uh, whether or not the virgin lives or dies is sort of like a toss-up. It doesn't actually matter. She just has to suffer. Mm-hmm. So Marty could have just been like all right, make it quick. <laughs> like, just, just kill me or here, I'll do it myself or I'll jump down into this thing. Mm-hmm. Like, well, like I'm going to save humanity. And instead they're both just like, no, humanity sucks. Uh, let's just, you know, we're both going to die right now anyway, but let's just not die in time so that everyone else can then die too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I just feel a little bit like, I don't know. You're telling me neither one of these characters has anybody else in the world that they care about who they yeah, don't want to suffer yeah. a horrible, horrible death. Yeah. <laughs> like, they know this stuff is real. They've been immersed in it. They've seen these monsters. They know that these people, as awful as they have been in, in trapping them into the situation, aren't lying to them. This is going to happen. Right, right. And yet there's still like my mom, my dad, my aunt, my grandma, my dog, like just fucking kill them all. Flush it down the toilet. I'm over it. Yeah, it is. It's kind of like, It huh. is fairly, I don't know if selfish is, I guess it's kind of selfish, but it's not like they survive or anything. How, how do you think, how would you think you would feel if she ended up shooting Marty or some version of that where the, the system gets preserved i i think if it were as simple as she ends up shooting marty it maybe wouldn't have been very satisfying Mm -hmm. but i think there's a way you could have done it where you know like uh (laughs) what's his what's his face the intern like shows up at the last minute you kind of don't notice him and he manages to do it or something but he manages to kill marty like i just feel like there's a way you could have done it that even would have left dana alive at the end 
and and maybe had her had to be like I don't I don't know I just I'm not against the idea of them both living through it but I'm against the idea that they would both live through it knowing that it meant everyone else in the entire world dies mm. you know what I mean yeah I guess I guess the the issue is that them uh, them completing the transaction, so to speak, and having Marty die would mean that, yeah, they saved the world, but also it, it's a preservation of the the organization system kind of thing that's going on. And yeah. I guess there's probably a way you could spin it. Like, I, I don't know is if that would be any more satisfying to have ultimately the system win when the whole since the whole thing is about becoming aware of the system and then bucking the system i don't know i don't know if that would be i think you could probably do it and pull it off but i'm not totally sure like if if uh if for for whatever happenstance marty gets killed and everything kind of calms back down and I guess the cycle continues kind of thing is I guess that that ending yeah. I guess that ending makes sense it sort of makes sense as to to how it would play out um but yeah I don't know yeah I, I think part of the problem is that this movie kind of <laughs> it kind of writes itself into a corner mm, yeah. um where there really isn't a great satisfying ending i mean i i could even see one where where like dana dies and because she dies it just like all right it's not gonna work no matter what and then marty's like well now i'm really not gonna help you i'm gonna sit back and smoke this joint and watch these like old gods climb up and and destroy everything like yeah i think that's probably the way I, I I think Marty being the last one alive and letting it all burn down makes more sense than both of them being alive. Yeah. 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 I just I keep I keep coming back to like, really you don't <laughs> you don't like every 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 baby on Earth deserves to die right now. Like I don't know. I, I just keep coming back to it and thinking like, for the character of. Dana, yeah. at least it doesn't yeah. feel like it makes much sense to me. Yeah, I, Marty, Marty sitting back and smoking a joint and saying "fuck it, it's all bullshit" anyway is yeah. is more believable. Yeah, than than Dana saying "sure, let's let's let the whole world burn down." I would agree with that. I think. Yeah. Yeah. I'm actually kind of bummed they didn't do that now because I think that that's. <laughs> Well, I'm he, glad I could ruin this movie for you. Well, no, it, no, I don't think you ruined it, ruined it at all. But it's just it is one of those things where it's like his whole through line is very much a it's like I said, it's the proving correct of the paranoid stoner who see all he sees is the is the is the man controlling you in the system. Puppeteer, even though he's probably his parents are probably rich and he probably never had to. Yeah, had no hardships <laughs> in his life. Um. <laughs> But yeah, making making your making your quote unquote hero the guy who's just like fuck it, it's all bullshit, which is one of my least favorite attitudes that I come across in real life because it's always yeah. <laughs> it's always the most difficult to have a conversation with someone who has that sort of mindset. But um, yeah, yeah, that would that would be I think that would be the way to go if you're going to end the world. I think it, it should should go that way. Yeah. Yeah, because I, I almost got the vibe that this movie was kind of trying to go for a little bit of a um, Ed- Edward Norton and Helena Bonham Carter standing together while the buildings collapse at the end of Fight Club. Oh, sure. Yeah. And it didn't come off the same way to me. It was sort of like more like, I don't know. It just didn't it didn't make sense for two people who were willing <laughs> to fight so hard for their own survival mm. that they wouldn't want to give the rest of the world a chance to do the same. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. I I would I would I would agree with that. 
And also, she apologizes pretty quickly after he just let her get mauled. But I feel like they have a lot to talk about, about what has been going on. Because she pulled a gun on him, and then he let her get mauled by a werewolf. Yeah, and they're both really, really ready to live and let live after that. Or die and let die, as it were. Yeah. Live briefly and let die soon. Yeah. (laughs) I do. You know, it's funny, though, because I, I... as much as I'm like, you know, kind of going against the way this movie ends, I don't hate the ending. Sure, sure. Like, I don't hate the idea that these old, the old gods do kind of arise and, and awaken from their slumber and that this system is being torn down and all of that. Like, I, I think all of that's really interesting. And, and obviously the ending visuals of uh, the aforementioned giant hand coming up out of the earth pretty cool Mm. like it's a silly looking hand but the concept is pretty cool if you Um, oh sorry go ahead no 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 you go ahead i was just gonna say if you if you really want to get galaxy brain about it and you track expand out what the consequences of the ending are and if you're like okay so if the gods are are the viewers and they are angry because they don't like the ending of the movie (laughs) <laughs> they've destroyed That's my hand. They've destroyed the world, which means they can never make a sequel. So it's it's this other <laughs> level of like meta-ness where it's like the because the fan because the audience reaction was so negative, they can't continue that world and 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 continue the world of the movie. <laughs> That's fun. I li- I like that. Yeah, and I am not on any pharmaceuticals or narcotics or anything at the moment. I, I mean, I had a couple Tylenol earlier, and maybe that's why I'm just so out there right now. I don't know. Just been too long in your own house. Yeah, that's probably part of it, too. Um, yeah. But yeah, uh, I think that's going to do it for Cabin Fever. Um, this is... Nope. Oh, you got more? Cabin in the Woods. Oh, God, I did that again. <laughs> Clay has been jerking me around for quite a while now, and he keeps going back and forth about whether or not we were doing Cabin in the Woods or Cabin Fever. I keep, so I was very confused. Yeah, I keep saying Cabin Fever, and I think it's just my own personal cabin quarantine fever? mindset is bleeding into <laughs> my my real life in a very metatextual way. Right, like how I realized that all of my uh, wildcard picks thus far have been essentially... Two people trapped alone in a house? Yes. Yeah. Uh huh. <laughs> Sorry, guys. I'll try to be a little less predictable with the next one. Yeah. Unfortunately, Cabin Fever is not on the list, and I don't foresee myself picking it as a wild card. Um, so we won't yeah, probably, probably ever, at least not anytime soon, be doing Cabin Fever. So I apologize. Uh, but Cabin in the Woods is number 30 on the list. How do you feel about that placement? Is it too high? Is it too low? Or is it is it good? I I think it should be probably somewhere in the hundreds. Yeah, I think I would agree with that. I'm willing I'm willing to give it a lot of leeway in the hundreds, but I I really don't I <laughs> I don't think it should be thirty. I mean I I know. We always talk about The Shining, mm-hmm. and that's number like 104 last time I think I checked. 113 currently. Oh, blech. <laughs> um, the Thing? The Thing was also pretty like high mm-hmm. up in the hundreds, right? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Like, I just, I, I like this movie a lot. I think it does a lot of interesting, fun things. There's a lot of like, like kind of like fun references to other films and like you know the sort of cornerstones of of horror movies but do i think that buys it the number 30 spot absolutely not yeah i would agree i this is not a rule that i i think i've ever thought about before but i have a hard time putting the the meta version higher than the thing it's being meta about you know, so it's like, th- yeah, this is a great mm. movie, but do I think this is better, a better movie than Evil Dead or Evil Dead 2? I probably would put those higher on the list than this. Um, both of those are lower on the list. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I would probably, I would say over the 100 mark. I would be fine in the early 100s 
if you really sure. wanted to put it up high. But yeah, I think it, it needs to be past the halfway point. Yeah, I, I agree because it also, you know, comparing it again to our other meta horror movie blockbuster, like Scream was meta about a lot of, uh, well, you know, a lot of preceding movies, but it then kicked off a whole new chain a whole new style a kind of like era in the genre i don't think cabin in the woods had the same impact throughout all of horror movies right and scream is um number we just we just did it uh it is number (laughs) 175 so that's pretty pretty low, and I, and this is a movie not to not to speak to the quality of the movie, but they act, this movie actually got shelved for a couple of years. Oddly oh, enough, wow. yeah, it was made by MGM, and then MGM went out of business. Well, that's not true; they st- they still exist, but they were having money <laughs> problems, so they had to mm. shelve the movie. And um, it wasn't until Lionsgate bought it, like a couple years later, that it actually came out. Um, so this. Chris Hemsworth shot this movie before he was cast as Thor, and it didn't come out until oh, wow. after Thor had come out. Huh. Yeah. So I'm not saying that that doesn't speak to quality, but it's it's like clearly it wasn't a zeitgeisty movie the way that something like Scream was. Right. So I yeah. Right. I do think it's great though. I really really enjoy this movie. Yeah. And I this is definitely no, no, one I that agree. I will watch watch more. Would you Would you recommend it? To somebody else? I I would. I would recommend it to a pretty broad audience because it has a lot of the horror movie elements and can be scary at times, Mm -hmm. but it's also, like, has enough levity and enough, like, gallows humor to sort of break that up. So if you're not somebody who's super into, like, you know, oh, I sit down to watch horror movies because I really want to be scared. Mm -hmm. Like, if that's not you, but you do sometimes like them... Like, I think this would work well in that case. I also think, like, it's just kind of a fun movie. Like, you don't need to get... You can do what we did here and get, like, really into, like, talking about archetypes and, Mm -hmm. like, all of this stuff. But you can also just watch it and, like, enjoy the visuals and enjoy the design and, like, laugh at inappropriate moments. Yeah, I, I think it works well... I, I think it can work well for most people because, and even even down to the title of it, the stuff that they're talking about is fairly generic. Yeah. At least I should say the surface level of it is fairly generic, where it's Cabin in the Woods. Oh, this is like a send-up of, of slasher movie stuff, which is something everybody has like an idea about. It's like how Dra- yeah. everybody knows who Dracula is, even if they've never read the book or seen a Dracula movie. You understand the, the visual. And mm-hmm. like the fangs and I want to suck your blood and all that kind of stuff. It's uh, horror movies with a killer stalking people in a cabin in the woods is pretty ubiquitous at this point. So yeah. even if you yeah, don't. Like... Sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, just ev- ev- everybody's in on it. Right. So even if you don't have a, the deep enough working knowledge to look at that board of monsters and go like, oh, that's from Evil Dead. Oh, that's from Hellraiser. That's from Black... Even if you don't have that working knowledge, I still think it works because the the comedy stuff, I think, works regardless. And just like I said earlier, I think it's it works enough as its own story that the, that the meta stuff is just a nice... Um, uh, next level to the to the enjoyment of it yeah yeah so that's gonna do it i think for cabin in the woods not cabin fever and uh i've hit the randomizer button and next time we will be doing we're gonna be heading overseas and back in time to the 70s with number 73 dario argento's I was going to say slasher, but it's a giallo. It's not a slasher movie. Giallo classic Deep Red, which I'm very excited to do. I know nothing about this film. Excellent. You've seen uh, (laughs) seen Suspiria, right? 
Yes. Yeah, it'll be interesting because I, I, I remember, do you, have you seen many other Argento movies? I am not sure. Not not enough to, to be able to name any, sure. no. Well, it's it's interesting because I, when I saw Suspiria, I was really into it. I was like, oh, girl, yeah, awesome. I'm all of this all day. And when I went and watched his other stuff, I was surprised. I was uh, surprised and slightly disappointed that it was not as, uh, for lack of a better term, flamboyant as that one was. Mm. But they are very interesting nonetheless. And Deep Red is, is definitely one of his, I think, one of his better uh, non-Suspiria Giallo movies. So All right, looking I'm forward ready. to that. I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts on it as a first timer. And uh, if you like Very what exciting. you hear, please give us a rating review on iTunes. That would be awesome. And uh, thank you so much for joining me, Amanda. Thank you, Clay. And we will see you next time. Bye, everyone. Bye.